0: He's looking at you, kid.
1: I'm Charles Foster Kane! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. everybody, this is Wrong Reel episode 463. It's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles where so we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today, thanks to the great Leanne Kubic, we're going to be tackling the work of Emir Kusteritsa, specifically his film Underground from 1995. But Leanne, welcome back to Wrong Reel.
0: Hello, James. So, so good to talk to you again. It's been a while, so I'm happy we're doing a happier film than last time. <laughs> I mean, last
1: time we tackled the career of Michael Hanukkah, which was intense and it was fascinating, but that was a, that was a tough one to prepare for because you're just going to go through days of feeling really sad, <laughs> whereas this is a movie filled with life and joy and humor and violence and sex and all these wonderful human emotions, so it was quite a different experience getting ready for this episode. Absolutely. Well, for people out there who may not have heard your previous episode, tell people what you've been up to, any podcasts you might have been uh, recording, any movies you've seen. Just what is the latest in the ongoing, sprawling saga of Leanne Kubich.
0: Well, I'm still out here in Kansas City. I've uh, uh, got a new job. I'm teaching kids to read, so that's always good, getting back into the, sort of the old library work I kind of used to do. Um, I just basically just kind of enjoying the springtime. It's really beautiful, I'm you know, uh, planting my garden been reading a lot now since i've teaching kids to read again and uh I'm, I'm in the middle of anna Karenina, and it's just fabulous so everybody should read that that's why there's like about 18 how much trouble would
1: a kid get in if he quoted billy madison in class by saying today junior very much probably i can remember that like being like in like third, fourth, fifth grade. I, I wouldn't say I was some sort of like advanced reader, but I definitely enjoyed reading. So just if you enjoy reading, naturally you're going to be a little ahead of some of your peers. But there'd be some, some kids who just straight up couldn't read and they'd just be really struggling. Of course, they're being humiliated by being forced to read passages in front of the class. And I can remember just in my mind being like, you're dumb, you're slow, just like feeling all these like feelings of rage. But Billy Madison articulated it beautifully. Of course, Veronica Vaughn grabs him by the ear, calls him a psycho and you know, so on and so forth. But very funny scene in Billy Madison.
0: Indeed, indeed. But we're, you know, we try to be sweeter to the kids. But other than that,
1: <laughs> well, sweeter yeah. than Billy Madison, that's, that's, that's an easy indeed. bar to cross.
0: Indeed. So, yeah, I mean, just kind of been, you know, I haven't really hit a lot of uh, big movies lately because my favorite movie theater in Kansas City, the Tivoli, closed. You had another independent film uh, house that has shut down. So, that's unfortunate. But, um, you know, otherwise, just kind of just. You know, enjoying uh, the springtime and stuff, and I'm I'm really looking forward to talking about this film because I've been, I've been like Joneson on this film for like 20 years.
1: So it's a good one. Well, before we get to Underground, I do have to ask you because this will probably come out right around or a little bit after the release of the Deadwood movie. On a scale of one to ten, what is your level of anticipation for the Deadwood movie? Is you're gonna put on your, your your seer your your soothsayer hat and your crystal ball? will the deadwood movie be satisfying for people who love those first three seasons cuz i guess it was 2006 when we last saw any deadwood on the screen
0: i'm really hoping it will be satisfying and i have a feeling it will be because they've taken so much time and care and thought to put this together and i don't think they're going to mess it up i mean i've recently i started rewatching the original you know the the first few episodes and all that and it's just like wow everything of this show is done so well that the set and the costumes tell the story things that if you don't know about well you'll know about them about the wild west from just seeing what the people look like and the dialogue is exceptional no nobody does dialogue like that um so it's I'm, i'm i'm definitely looking forward to it i definitely think that it'll I think they'll do a good job. Um, and, of course, they have all of the original actors back in it. So, I, I, Except I,
1: for people like Powers Booth, who sadly are no longer with us.
0: Right, right. So I, I have a feeling it'll be pretty good. I, it's not what we wanted, like, you know, a continuation of the television show. But I think it'll be pretty good, even though it's only, like, what, a two-hour film. But
1: That's my big source of caution is that when we're used to these 13-hour sprawling character-driven sagas with this beautifully savage and poetic dialogue and all these like interwoven like uh, relationships and dramas uh, all taking place simultaneously, we're used to this rich tapestry when it comes to Deadwood. A two-hour story almost feels like a tease that's like too cruel for words And so I hope they found just a small kind of consolidated story they can tell. But I'm so used to that decompressed kind of laid back pace because it's the Wild West. People had all the time in the world to go about their business. And can you really capture that in a two hour movie? Uh, So that does concern me. Also, the fact that David Milch has now been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, which is horrible. But he did some work on season three, of True Detective. And the episode that he wrote, I thought was the best episode of the season. So I know he's still in command of his faculties, but I, I think his sadly his creative career is drawing to a close. I know he's had all these horrendous gambling problems. I mean his his life had just been fucking chaos. Like he, every single dollar he ever made making all these shows has been lost to like gambling on horses and that sort of thing. I mean he's just a he's a, a, he's a walking catastrophe. But I do hope that he'll stick the landing, and because this very well might be the last thing that he ever does.
0: Yeah, I mean, and I have a feeling. I mean, with so much. I don't know. They're, they're with the legacy that the show has, and I think the actors are all going to, you know, put in the effort and all of that. And everybody who's involved with it is going to put in as much effort, and uh, that they know that they it's loved and they love it too. So I, I have really high hopes. I'm I'm really crossing my fingers, but I, I, I think it'll come out okay. I'm hoping
1: so. Well, also, for me. I- the older I get, the more interested I am just in the in the in the craft of writing. I mean, I, while I respect photography and editing and music and everything, sort of I just I really love great craftsmanship when it comes to writing. And I've been revisiting season three, and his dialogue is completely utterly unique. And I feel like in the world of TV right now, there's a lot of mediocre sameness, interchangeable flavors when it comes to the way they're they're shot, the way the characters speak. Uh, there's so many interchangeable Netflix shows that it just kind of makes you demoralized by watching TV at all. But when you watch any episode of Deadwood, you know you're in the hands of a master storyteller who writes dialogue in a way unlike any other writer right now. And it's just... It's such a rare privilege to be exposed to that level of dialogue that kind of makes me sad that we're only getting a feature film. But better a feature film than nothing at all. So, yeah, I'll definitely be there. It comes out the night before I fly to Italy, so I'm going to watch it. I'm going to bang it out and try to review it as fast as possible. But I am very fired up for it.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, seriously, if anybody goes back and just watches those first few episodes, I mean, it's, it's so – brutal and you don't expect it and I forgot how brutal of a show it was because it's just telling the truth about how it was and how you know relations between like men and women and, and all those sort of things it's it's really well done my god I could forgot how great it was
1: and it probably got the most agonizing depiction of kidney stones ever caught on film in the beginning part of season two and al swearingen get after getting in a horrible fight gets this horrible case of kidney stones and they're talking about like going through his taint and trying to like you know relieve the tension and they finally they take something that looks like you would use on an elephant to put up his his old chap in order to try to pass the stones. And it's like all the thick, rocky blood coming out of me. I mean, I was dry-heating my shirt, squeezing my knees together, rolling around the floor. And I, I could not believe just how dark and sad <laughs> that got. So I've been drinking water at a steady clip ever since, hoping to God that I never get kidney stones because it does not look like any kind of fun.
0: Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, they, they put in the reality of how... Horrible life was, and how primitive medical care was back in that time, and that was like every day, if no matter what, if you had an accident, you were dead. I mean, so I love that fact that it just shows how mean of an existence it was. Uh, that you know, they they spoke genteelly, but they did not live that way.
1: That's what's so cool is like there's this weird contrast. It's incredibly formal. And it's almost like aristocratic in the way people express themselves. Or they're talking like they've spent the last 20 years living in in an alley, like beating people to death with clubs. And it's just that wonderful, beautiful, poetic savagery. That's what I really respond to is that the combination of those two flavors because you rarely find them going together. But I don't want to get too derailed with my obsession with Deadwood because we're here to talk about Underground, 1995, a movie that I think is easily one of the strongest movies of the 1990s and won the the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival. But here we are in 2019, and I think a lot of young filmgoers have probably never heard of this movie. They've probably never heard of Amir Kusaritsa. I mean, he won the Palme d'Or twice. He's been the president of the at Khan a few times in the 21st century. But for the, the, the youngins out there who might not have had the privilege of seeing this movie yet, uh, walk us into this topic. Who is Amir Kusaritsa? When did you first hear about him? And how did you first get exposed to Underground?
0: Um, It was probably about 1999. I was in college. I was going to William Patterson University. And I forget which film class it was. But um, my uh, doctor, Jamshid Akrami, he's actually a a preeminent scholar in Iranian films. He's made a few documentaries and stuff if you look him up. Fabulous stuff. Um, He showed us this film in class. And it was funny because it's a three-hour-ish film. And, you know, class was only like two hours, two and a half hours. And he showed it. And it was over, you know class was ending and people were leaving. He's like, if you want to stay, you can watch it. I'm like, I'm staying. I'm sucked in. And I watched that whole thing. And I was like, wow. I mean, that's kind of when I think things changed for me with film where I I was already studying it kind of casually. But that's when I was like, no, this there's something to this. This is brilliant. I've never seen anything like this. It's enrapturing. It's beautiful. It's sad. It's everything that I could have thought that could be in a movie. And then after that, I sort of just got really really fixated on this film when I went to grad school I did a large uh, project on it like talking about how historical um you know how how histories are shown in films like comparing this to say Dr. Zhivago which is a fantasy but is a little more um you know straightforward um that sort of thing so that I studied it with that and then over the years I've you know I've watched every few years and I couldn't understand why you know you see people on you know film twitter or what have you, you know, oh, I really like this film and certain films seem to get popular and nobody seems to be into this film. This film is super gifable. My God, the amount of gifts you could have, it's it's a ridiculous looking film and nobody talks about it except for me or a few other people and I kind of didn't get it. Why, why did it, this film it become should be, unpopular?
1: It should be mentioned alongside Breaking the Waves. It should be mentioned alongside Heavenly Creatures. It should be mentioned alongside Once Were Warriors. Like any big foreign film from the 90s that made a big splash, I think it belongs in their company without question. And it's just so funny seeing how some filmmakers get a little bigger every year and certain movies get a little bigger and some just just dissolve into the ashes of time. And it almost seems like... A Trick of Fate, Chaos at Work. Like, what? why is The Thing from 1982 suddenly become one of the greatest horror movies ever made, whereas other movies just completely disintegrate into nothing and you never hear from them again? Which is one of the reasons I like doing this podcast is to help dust off some of these films because most films about history, particularly films about war, are so rigid and it's like history under glass and they're trying so hard to really kind of teach you something about history, they kind of forget to entertain the shit out of you and i feel like with underground you're not allowed to be bored ever it's 2 hours and 40 minutes of just complete total bedlam and insanity and you're just like <laughs> it just it makes you howl with laughter just by the sheer outrageousness, outrageousness of the movie every step of the way which is definitely my kind of movie, but it has a very unusual premise. So what is, in broad strokes, what is the story of Underground?
0: Well, I always start off when I tell people Underground is one of my favorite movies, and I just say, flat out, easiest way, it's about the disintegration of Yugoslavia. Just That's that's really what it's about, which is a easy way to tell people about what it is without going into the broad strokes. So really what happens is, though, the actual story is there are two men, Blackie and Marco, they're friends, and they are trying to be, uh, you know, they're, they're working in the resistance against the Nazis who have come in and, you know, started shelling uh, Belgrade and they're, they're taking over. So they're trying to, you know, they're resistance fighters against the Nazis and, um, you know, they're doing all that. So basically at a certain point, um, Marco, who is in the Communist Party, he gets Blackie, who is his friend, into the Communist Party. And then Blackie is basically he's he's injured. OK, and and um, they decided to bring everybody down to like basically a shelter, an underground shelter. And he's like, OK, we're going to put everybody there. Everybody's going to hide. Um, actually, he doesn't get injured then. But anywho, everybody's down. In, they're, they're hiding all their friends and family in uh, underground to hide them from the uh, from the Nazis. And they're also building munitions to send up for the resistance. Fantastic. But here's the thing. Marco doesn't tell Blackie and everybody else that the war ends in 1945 and they stay there. And they keep making munitions for him so that he can become uh, rich for, you know, being in the Communist Party. And he's basically taking advantage of all his friends underground. And they're lived there. They don't even know. They think that the war is still going on. And that's what happens in this film where, you know, one friend betrays another and makes him go underground. And it's basically like an allusion to how Tito, who was the, you know, the, 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 um, the president for life of Yugoslavia, he kept his people insulated from the outside world. Um, in Yugoslavia saying, no, 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 this is a world you need to live in. Look at this wonderful Pan-Slavic you know, utopia I've made for you. You don't need anything outside of this. I'll tell you what to think. And that's kind of what the illusion of what this story is
1: uh, about. Very well said. And it's funny, though, how controversial, the movie is like, I, I've read a lot of different reactions where people who were pro-Bosnia or pro-Serbian in the early, early mid nineties had wildly different reactions. And then there were even like French film critics. Like, there are a lot of people that were blasting this movie without having seen a frame of it, which is just the most obnoxious form of behavior known as human civilization. When people have an agenda and they try to destroy a movie just on the suspicion that it might have a slightly different point of view than what they have. But it just what I love about this is a Blackie is just this—he's he's all man. He's heroic. He's strong. He's brave. He's loyal. He's he's a lover. He's a fighter. He just—he's got so much emotion and so much loyalty to his country. All he cares about is his country. He doesn't care about his government. He doesn't care about his army. He doesn't care about anything. He just—he's just like a man of the people fighting for what he believes is right. And he has this friend who's. As as their as their mutual uh, kind of lover acknowledges, they would be the perfect man if they were one. Like Marcos, the mind, he's devious, he's clever, he's a schemer. And if he and Blackie were the same person, he would probably would have been Tito. He would have been he would have conquered the entire country. But they happen to be two separate people. And I love that yin and yang quality. And I love the relationship how they both love the same woman, and she is just the most erotic insane just over the top just delightful character imaginable and when I see the three of them together when they're like when they're dancing in the underground or at their wedding and their, their heads kind of all placed together and the cameras underneath looking up at them you just fall in love with this trio and it's a shame that war and betrayal and lies repeat routinely drive them apart because obviously the three of them are at their best when they're together, and I just, I think those three characters are so well defined and they're so delightful in their own ways. That's really the the heart and soul of this movie is those three characters when they're together.
0: Oh my god, absolutely, my god. I mean, those the three actors, and I'm going to probably mangle their names, and I, I do uh, apologize to them. Uh, so Marco is played by Pet, Pet, Petgrad Miki Majolovic, okay, and then Blackie's played by L- Lazar Ritsoski, Ritsoski, sorry, and Natalia's. Uh, Marjana Djokovic and they are just the best actors they're brilliant I mean they should have gotten the acting awards at Cannes that year like all three of them should have gotten like a, a three-way award because not only like they act you know they, they they span time they get older through the film and there's also an alternate act where they're playing different um, act, They're playing actors they're playing different people and it's a brilliant little sequence where you're like wow these people are really amazing actors because they're completely different people in another scene, um, so yeah, they're they're just so so wonderful, so full of life, and just the ability to do anything they'll go anywhere for this they're
1: they're they're all in they are so game (laughs) for anything kutzeritsa sets before them but maybe it's a way of kind of breaking it into pieces and bites us chunks because the movie is broken into three chapters it's war cold war and then war again in the early 90s let's talk about the first war first 1945 we are seeing belgrade being shelled by the nazis and you learn everything you need to know about these guys pretty quickly early on like for Blackie, the fact that his breakfast is being interrupted by shelling is like, you know, a crime against nature. And so, of course, he's going to go out and kill as many Nazis as he possibly can. He's just so inconvenienced by the fact that they're under attack. Or when you see Marco, he's in the middle of having sex with some full-bodied prostitute who's terrified of the bombing. And he's, all he's trying to do is desperately just trying to finish his orgasm. And, of course, she runs off and he's like masturbating out of a window. And just like one guy's brave, one guy's into sex. And you kind of like you, you immediately know who these guys are. But even earlier than that, Just watching this crazy opening credit sequence when you have this marching band, this gypsy marching band, playing some of the coolest music of all time, and they're just getting completely, totally shit-faced. And Blackie's shooting his gun at the band, and they'll just kind of part ways, but they don't even seem to really get mad. They're just laughing and howling. I mean, these guys are just fucking animals but they obviously are having quite a lot of fun but it makes you it, if you like to drink and laugh and fight and just raise hell these are the guys who you want to uh, who you want to hang out with
0: yeah i mean this is literally like the greatest title sequence of all time as far as i'm concerned i mean you see you hear this wonderful brass you know music starting and then you know you just hear this bump 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 and people running down the road and getting shot at but it's not like they're shooting at them. They're just shooting a gun because they're really drunk and they're throwing money in everywhere. And it's just, it's a party. And it's its so much fun. And you're just like, I want to be with these guys. Even though they're obviously like, you know, you know, Blackie's getting, you know, um, beat up by his wife because he's coming all home all late. And, you know, they're obviously like resistance fighters. They're not going to actually be having a very good time. But gosh, it's just so much, it's riotous. And then, of course, we also meet Yvonne on that, on that little journey, who is another really important character. He's probably like the fourth most important character who is, um, Marco's younger brother who has like a stutter and he's just a good man. He works, he's a zookeeper and people treat him a little funny cause he has a stutter, but he's, you know, he, he works at the zoo and he takes care of the animals and he sees his brother Marco along the way, who obviously is a big hero to him because he's this suave gentleman with lots of money. And that's how we meet all of them. You know, this riotous, ridiculous, quick act. And then, you know, it goes on to the shelling, to the bombing in the morning where we see Sonny at the zoo. He's taking care of the animals. And then the animals start getting upset because they know the bombing is going to happen. And then all these... And it's it's interesting because Marco, Blackie, and Natalia are sort of a joke, you know, through most of the film. They're they're, uh, an archetype of sort of a slapstick sort of thing. And Ivan is not... Ivan is a serious character sort of the whole time. And it's an interesting juxtaposition where it's almost like Ivan is the fragility of what Yugoslavia was and how it will fall apart. And he was real. I mean, even like the second scene we see of him, he's hanging himself in the kitchen and all his family members are like, what are you doing? What are you doing? How could you be so silly? And he's in despair because his town is under siege and he's acting sort of um, smart to the, uh, you know, naturally, it's like, I'm in despair, I'm sad, I, I want to die. And everybody's like, what are you doing? You know, just you know, get over it. So that it's such an interesting juxtaposition right there at the beginning of these different characters.
1: Absolutely. Well, when we meet Natalia, she's an actress working in the local theater, a theater that is frequented by the Nazi invaders. And so she's kind of got divided loyalties initially because she just wants to, to act, whether it's for the Nazis, for her, for her own people, or, or whomever. But of course, Blackie and Marco are both immediately completely totally infatuated with her. And the big deal is whether or not they can take her away from Franz. And I love how on two different occasions, occasions in this movie, they just tire to the back of Blackie. And like the first time it's kind of against her will like she's being kidnapped. And the second time later on, it's just like, well, we're wasted, we're at a party. Why not use the party decorations to tie me to your back? We're we're just we're just having fun. But it's just it seems like initially she's kind of going wherever the prevailing winds blow. And this is one of the most like kind of wild over the top parts of the movie where you have this ongoing feud with Franz and, you know, you have battles and torture sequences. And of course, Blackie, who's just like, he's fucking Superman. You can shock him as much as you want. And like his hair might get a little singed, but he'll just kind of grit his teeth and just power through. And I love how they, they tested at one point, like, is this thing even working? They tested on a Nazi and he's killed instantaneously. <laughs> Blackie's just, he's made a very stern, strong stuff. And it's going to take a lot more than a few electric shocks to, to, to put him in his place.
0: Yeah, and that's another thing. Speaking of like Blackie, I mean, at one point he actually like puts a a, a wire in his mouth um, and like bites it, and it like you know breaks, like because he's an electrician, he's a pole man. So he's, I mean, and it's funny because there are certain critics of the movie who are like, oh, it's. It's, a, it's an orgy of, of violence and, and, and people think that people act like this and I'm like it's really obvious this is slapstick yeah it's comedy. operatic
1: it's like operatic it's, slapstick
0: <laughs> yeah so how anybody could think that anybody would take that as like oh well that's how you know Slavic people are or Balkan people are like no it's obviously incredibly stylized.
1: Like. Well, if anything, it makes you, like. for me, it's like the, like the best possible advertisement for going to some of the countries that made up the former country of Yugoslavia. I mean, I've been to Croatia once. In 2002, I went over there for a film festival. My first short film I ever produced, this little film called The Yellow House. Uh, the director was Croatian, uh, Goran Dukic. And so we went over, and we did there for like 10 days. And, granted, it wasn't, like, underground, but there was this wild, uninhibited quality that was just delightful. Like, you did have bands marching through the streets. Or they showed a movie, they'd show it outdoors, and they would stretch it between, like, castle walls and serve glasses of champagne. I like that's how I first saw Shaolin soccer. It was just fucking bananas. And you just drank and ate sausage and just raised hell and watched movies all day, every day. And, like, during the day, you just like, swim in the Adriatic to cool off and stuff like that. But it was in a little town called Motovun. The only downside was that they are very friendly to hippies there. So at night you have these giant drum circles outside the hotel, which is like thousands of dirty hippies banging on drums. I'm like, all right, I I fell out of love with hippie culture uh, on that trip, but I absolutely fell in love with Croatian culture while I was over there. It was just so goddamn delightful. And like, you know, people would just dance until like six, seven, eight in the morning. So once again, people weren't shooting guns at the band, but uh, you can definitely tell that it's a a region where people really like to get after it and cut loose.
0: Yeah. I mean, and especially from the music, um, that, that that is constantly in this film like i think there's very little non-diegetic music in this film i think maybe in the third half possibly there's a little like you know orchestral music but it's really all that band yeah that band that just runs around after them and plays and i think in a way that's like it's such a hilarious little like greek chorus because they kind of are, they're a vaguely greek chorus like the the band leader at a few times says a catastrophe a catastrophe he's the one who kind of realizes that there's bad things are going to happen, but they're just kind of along for the ride. Cause they're also musicians who
1: want to make money. So, you know, There you go. And I love how they they live in the underground with everybody else. Like when you first see Blackie in the underground after uh, it's been a 20 year gap, and he's just sitting in a bathtub. He's drinking. He's smoking. He's like almost like flexing. He's getting like a back. Someone's washing his back. But the band is playing. Like the band's been trapped with these people for 20 years, just creating the soundtrack to these people's lives. And Blackie still is just king of the castle full of confidence. He's convinced that if he could go up to the surface, he'd win the war in three days' time. And I just, uh, there's something about Blackie. You see it early on, like, in just a few seconds visually, we learn all we need to know about him when he uh, sits down beside somebody and he needs to shine his shoes, and he just grabs a live cat. And he starts rubbing on his boots, and the cat's like man And he just keeps rubbing, rubbing, rubbing. And then throws the cat aside. He, like I said, he is—he's all man.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. And but yet he is a lover. I mean, he loves you know Natalia, but also when Vera, his wife, dies, I mean, he's—he's he's still like you know lights a candle to her. Her, he has like a little sort of shrine to her and things like that. So he is a honorable in that old fashioned way of he honors his what his old wife. I guess well he,
1: he honors that. her, but you can also get the sense from her rage that she, he's not entirely unafraid to have something going on the side as well. So like, oh. he's, he's old world and he loves his family. He loves his wife like, in his own mind. I'm sure he loves his wife dearly, but he also is unafraid to pursue Natalia at the same time. But obviously when it comes to raising his son, he's so Even though his son has none of his qualities, he's like, my son looks just like me. My son's just like me. Like all my great qualities. And like, no, he's like, he's, he's fragile and he's skinny and he's kind of ignorant and he's, he's cute, but he's, he's not Blackie, but Blackie's just so proud of his son in in spite of his many shortcomings.
0: Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's so sweet when the son, when the, 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 you know, he's finally out and he sees the moon and he's like, look, dada, it's the sun. He's like, no, sweetheart, that's not the sun, that's the moon because he doesn't know. He's never seen it. I mean, that's
1: just, it's when he adorable. Sees a deer and he's like, oh, it's a horse. <laughs> his, his son does not know shit. Like, yeah, he can't swim or anything like that. But getting back to uh, part one, oh, but I love, there's a great little bit of like dark, I mean, this movie's just absolutely thriving with the, with dark humor, but toward the end, when they're being bombed by the Allies now and not by the Germans, like oh, well, like it it's like these these poor people, whether they're bombed by the Germans or bombed by the Germans' enemies, they're just always being bombed one way or another. It just it's a very tough time to live in Yugoslavia, and it's just it, it breeds very sturdy, strong people who are just used to getting the shit into the stick, irrespective of the tide of the war.
0: Right. And it's interesting, too, when you think about how like it but when it was because in the 80s, I mean, my God, they had the Olympics there in Sarajevo. That was a 82 or 84. So, I mean, they did have some semblance of time of sort of peace, even though because, you know, Yugoslavia was the quote unquote best place to be if you were in a communist state because there was a like a modicum of freedom there. Um, like the, the artist Marina Abramovic, the, uh, the performance artist, mm-hmm. she's Lucas, Yugoslavia, former Yugoslavian, and she was allowed to do all her incredibly radical art because Yugoslavia allowed her out of their borders and allowed people that sort of vague freedoms and some ethnic, um, some cultural um, uh, uh, traditions they were allowed to have. So like, that's the weird thing about Yugoslavia, where it kind of wasn't the worst place.
1: Uh, it wasn't as bad as the Soviet Union, put it, put it plainly. Gotcha. Yeah, I've seen yeah. some of her work. I saw some of her work at the MoMA. She had this giant exhibit where like, she just had to take over an entire wing for a while. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> she had this one room where you walk into the room, there's nothing in there except for a nude girl up on the wall sitting on a bicycle seat like in this like giant starfish position. And her job was to make eye contact with the, the viewer. It wasn't like she was oblivious and like kind of looking ahead. She was it's almost like she's trying to see will you break or will you look away or will you leave the room and very deliberately almost kind of making people feel awkward and uncomfortable to be in the room and then I remember there's another doorway to even get into the doorway it was two completely nude dudes facing each other and to get through it you kind of had to sort of turn sideways and slide between them but you were going to touch both their dicks whether you liked it or not just to get to get through them for me I was like god damn you probably get chafed after a couple hundred people walk through that doorway but obviously very provocative crazy weird stuff but you yeah, it was a it was a very entertaining day at yeah. the MoMA.
0: I went to that one too. When I went through Improm in Palma, in Palma Durabilia, the name of the, that that piece with the doorway, there was a man and a woman. So I decided to uh, face the man because the woman was my height and I didn't want to look her in the eye. Ah, so gotcha. <laughs> I felt bad because I had, a, I had a, like a purse and I was like totally scraped up against these poor naked people. I felt terrible. Um, but yeah, I was at that, that, that exhibit too. And it was extraordinary, but that's the kind of like that, that sort of, I mean, if you look at those two artists, you know, Costa Rica and Abramovich, like, the kind of art they're making came out of Yugoslavia, like, living in that experience, so there's something very different about that place than, say, a Soviet Union or, or another communist oppressive uh, society. I mean, oppressive societies often have, you know great uh, artistic output, but this is like a really, really interesting artistic output. That yeah, is it's
1: wild and yeah. uninhibited. Well, let's talk about part two, the Cold War, where as far as people in the, on the underground are concerned, 15 years have passed, but really 20 years have passed, but they've been manipulating the clocks to shave off a few hours every day just so people won't be completely, you know, going stir crazy. But they are kind of going stir crazy, but they, they work all day. They're cranking out all these rifles. Marco up on the surface has become one of uh, Toadie's, uh, is it, is it Tito? Tito? Tito, sorry, not Toady one of Tito's kind of go-to guys he's, he's become incredibly wealthy very powerful he's a hero of the country he has his, his biography which is now being shot as a movie where you have all these different actors portraying Natalia, Marco and Blackie meanwhile Blackie's still living with his son and the rest of his people down below and they eventually cook up this scheme where they need to have Natalia go down into the underground and so she acts like she's been captured and raped and abused by Nazis and that sort of thing but the scene before she goes down there I think this might be the wildest scene of the movie where she and Marco are just going berserk. She's dancing and he's crawling on the floor like a dog. It seems like Marco's got a lot of submissive inclinations when it comes to to sex and women. He loves to be on his knees. He loves to have like a high heel in his mouth or in his crotch and that sort of thing. But it's just this wild fucking scene that if it doesn't turn you on on some level, I guess uh, I I don't know if we can like have a conversation about sex, but it's so physical and so unbridled and the way she's like crushing his head like between her thighs. It's just, it's fucking bananas. But I just, I laugh with sheer glee throughout that entire extended sequence.
0: Oh yeah. I mean, it's super sexy and everything. And also, it's just like, she's starting to hate him at that point. Like she's starting. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I mean, he's still like, okay, I'm making money. Like I'm not totally like, you know, you can tell he's kind of like morally like, eh, about it but not totally because he's making money but she's like no this is wrong we're keeping these people hostage and i hate this and but of course she's like well i'm sexually attracted to you so well screw it you know and so it's that kind of thing where she's super attracted to him and also to the power and to the money she's getting from being associated with him so like i i can understand like you know why she's getting like angry she's toying with him in that scene she's just messing with him just to be like i'm gonna punish you because of what you're doing to them and you're you're killing my soul in a way by doing this Uh, i think is that when she says you're killing my soul is it a little later
1: well also because she's had to give up her career as an actress in order to be this figurehead for the state. she's a celebrity now but she's no longer performing so she's been deprived of the thing that she loved most as as a young woman
0: right right and this is also when we meet all of the alternate actors when they're the alternate actors at this 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 uh, this triumphant movie they're making.
1: Yeah, they're making a pure propaganda piece where yeah, Blackie and Marco depicted as these giant, larger than life heroic figures, and it's completely absurd and ridiculous. But you can just tell it's a little you know, commentary on perhaps on some of the government funded films that are being made in the '60s. But man, when the, when Marco and Natalia go down into the underground for the wedding of Blackie's son, I feel like the movie just finds another gear. Where it's like there's been this insane ride, and somehow they just throw gasoline on a brush fire and just amp things up just a, li- just a little bit more. Natalia's dancing all over the place. like She does this erotic dance with the tank where she it's like very phallic with the, uh, what do you call the part of the tank that actually fires? In, in any case, she's doing this wild dance and you have all this tension between Marco and Blackie because Marco doesn't want Natalia to get too wasted and misbehave but Blackie's still convincing Natalia his wife, and he's, like, telling his friend, well, you don't get to talk to my wife as if she's your wife. And so you start getting the brewing tension between these two guys. And then, of course, this lovable, delightful monkey in the chaos and confusion ends up blowing a fucking hole in the wall, which allows Blackie and his son to finally go participate in this war that ended 20 years ago.
0: Yeah, I mean, and there's so much going on in that, that whole sequence that is just, like, like the, the bride who has that strange contraption that makes her fly through the air sort of like, I mean, it's really beautiful and it's very, it's very like, Oh, she's like an angel, but it's also like, what is that about? Like maybe there's some folk tale or something. I don't know yeah, it's about very ritualistic. That. Yeah. Because I mean, they, they, she's flying through and she's, she's floating and everybody's like, Oh, how amazing, how beautiful. And then she goes down and she kisses her her husband and it's it's so lovely her groom you know but it's like i i don't know what that's about um but it's it's really interesting looking it's very very beautiful and you know, I mean, there's just th- that that wedding seems to go on forever. You know, like you feel like they're there, you know, they're there for like, you know, seven hours. Yeah, And something. the amount of I booze mean,
1: they consume is prodigious. And I think my favorite shots are just of Natalia sitting there with one arm around Marco, and one arm around Blackie, just kind of swaying back and forth. And you can tell she absolutely loves and adores these guys intensely. And they kind of they both provide something to her that need that the other one can't. And how her life really is incomplete unless she has both of those guys in her life. Which I've seen those kind of relationships in the past where you just have these these trios where the, it's almost like they should have been Mormons and had some sort of like polygamous scenario where they're just – they're better together as opposed to trying to keep things uh, monogamous. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean and it's just like – it's so interesting too in like that, that whole sequence where the band – I mean the band is there and they're like on a wedding cake that spins – So like somehow they built this wedding cake and it's like spinning around and they keep playing and playing and playing and it goes faster and faster. And there's even like a younger girl who's probably like probably 12 and she's already starting to learn how to do the gypsy dancing. So she's gypsy dancing on the tank. Um, And it's just like all of these wild things are happening and you're like, and they even say, like, oh, the feast is modest because we don't have a lot down here. But it looks like a pretty great feast.
1: That, well, they definitely have no shortage of booze. Like, <laughs> the, the rate at which they're drinking is, is intense. And it's just like, I mean, how much wine can a human being have before they just reach a, a co- complete saturation point? But they just keep finding a, a little more room for a little bit more booze. And, yeah, it, that's the one thing about this movie is that it, it makes you want to go out and go on a twenty kind of 24-hour bender. It just makes drinking look like so much goddamn fun.
0: Yeah, there's very few um, films that have, like, as much fun with sort of, like, just being a complete, uh, like, drunken idiot than this film. Like, there's a wonderful, in this first section, there's a wonderful, like, bar fight where, basically, uh, the band's there and Marco and Blackie are getting in fight with some, uh, something about arms dealing and they're getting in a fight. And they just, I mean, the bands, they already tells the band, start playing louder and faster and they start beating people with like pool cues and and then they're kissing the ladies who are on the side (laughs) in the middle of while they're like beating guys up they start kissing women and then they start beating guys up some more and it's great i mean so everything in this like a lot of these films are like this out outsized sort of three stooges craziness of just Party, party, party. And
1: Marco but really I- feels the music. Anytime there's mm-hmm. any music, he just, he oh, can't yeah. help him. He just, he's wiggling. His arms are flailing about. His legs are tapping. And while I was watching this movie, I actually got like a cramp in my ankle. Uh, my, my right foot was just thrashing and bopping up and down so quickly. I was like, all right, I got to just stop wiggling my fucking foot because I'm going to hurt myself. But it's just, mm-hmm. it's completely involuntary. Your body just responds. But obviously, Marco, he, it's such a, an insanely contagious performance where the way he's just smoking and drinking and wiggling all around, he just makes you want to go berserk in the same fashion
0: and he keeps smashing bottles over his head that's like the way he gets natalia to stop drinking he just takes the bottle smashes it over his head and then continues on like it didn't even happen like not even like a second it's like smash and then go on with his conversation like wow
1: Um, because like in the middle of all this celebration Every chance she gets, she's telling them, I fucking despise you, I fucking hate you, (laughs) blah, blah, blah. And she's just pounding booze. Like, you can see where this is going, and it's going to be hard to maintain their cover. But then once uh, Blackie escapes, I love how they end up on the movie set, and they can't quite understand what the hell's happening. And his son's like, yeah, that guy looks just like you. And he's like, well... All brave men look like look like me. And like <laughs> it just, it's such a great line. Of course, he ends up shooting the actor playing Franz, and they end up getting this like in this there's this beautiful quiet moment where Blackie's teaching his son to swim, because his son's never been out, been outside before, and they get attacked by this helicopter. And Blackie just grabs a a rifle, and he's just going to war with this helicopter, you know, one one man versus machine. Like he's finally getting his moment to have this battle that he wants. And sadly, his son. We entered into kind of this magical realism because his son drowns, but he finds his wife beneath the tide. And it seems like, like when in the afterlife in this movie, in the afterlife, obviously, they all end up there together, like on this floating island at the end. But you can kind of find lost souls and loved ones uh, through water, and they have these like wonderful, beautiful reunions. And I love that blurring of fantasy and reality, and it just seems to play out very well. In spite of the gritty realism of the fact that you're dealing with war, it does allow this kind of supernatural quality to kind of bleed into the story that I think works really well.
0: Well, that's why I think it's so great about like just the story overall because it's not your straight story about okay, this is Yugoslavia and then they had communism and then they had this horrible civil war. I mean, none of this stuff ever happened. There were never people put under you know in a basement and none of this stuff happened. But it's all an allegory of how sort of like Yugoslavia went down. You know, great ambition and then things fell apart. And I think that's so wonderful about it. It's an alternate history to teach you about the history.
1: Well, it's like the last line of the movie, once upon a time, mm-hmm. there was a country, which is like the perfect, like ominous line to describe, like is not a good country, not a bad country, just once upon a time, there was a country. And we've seen this in- extraordinary narrative unfold over several decades that has captured this wildly turbulent period. And I, I absolutely love and adore that. Like, in that we live in such hyper-partisan times. There's something beautiful about this kind of bird's-eye view, kind of almost like a like zen philosophy about we're not offering any judgments, we're not offering any excuses, just once upon a time, there was a country.
0: Right, and I think that, that it's from reading what the criticisms are now at, from the time that, like, you know, the early 2000s or, you know, 1999 when I first saw that, it seems like people are becoming more political. Well, first of all, we are Americans, and yes, this is one of those films that's sort of made for an international art audience, So that's always a consideration when you look at something because you have to figure who, like, who are the politics made for. Um, But a lot of people seem to think that this, I I mean, and maybe because we don't understand the languages spoken, that apparently there's more, um, like, Serbian spoken in the film than other dialects and things like that. Not that I would understand that. Um, So I think there's certain things that are just going to fly over my head as an American, um, even though it is, but it seems like some film.
1: people are mad. Like I saw some people saying that it was too pro-Serbian, but then I saw other people saying that it was too pro-Yugoslavian. And whenever I see people that are outraged at a movie, and the outrage is coming from different vantage points, or the, like almost like the outrage kind of cancels each other out, I'm like, all right, well, this is a movie worth discussing and a movie worth watching because if you're pissing off a variety of factions, not just one, then clearly. It's like any wonderful story. It's got ambiguity, and it doesn't have a specific agenda. And I think that's what a lot of people found so infuriating, is that they were having a hard time pinning down precisely what this movie's trying to do. And I feel like it's just trying to depict a culture in a state of upheaval. And that's what I find so refreshing and delightful. And I I think it's it's a movie that will age really, really well. If he had made some diehard partisan movie in the mid-90s, it would be of its time whereas I feel like underground you can watch it a hundred years from now and the lessons will still apply
0: right because it's, inter- it's interesting because there's a the philosopher uh, Bernard Henri levy had said that um, he called him a fascist author for making this film which I think is the most ridiculous
1: criticism because he yeah, hates fascists
0: like they say I mean you I think there's about 28 times or something in the movie where there's subtitles to say uh the fucking fascists, or fuck, you know, something like that you know and like constantly they're constantly talking about how fascists are bad so i mean and you know i i, I respect Henri uh, levy but i i think he's a little ridiculous about that um i mean there's also um zizek who's another philosopher who he says that, you know it was staged for the west it, it did it did makes everybody think in the west that people act like that which i think is really reductionist and how stupid can you be if you think that people actually act like this. Um so and it's funny that these are coming from really hardcore philosophers, not from just like a critic, like a, a like a film critic. was well, I mean, like the old coming-
1: Woody Allen line like he's like one thing you know about intellectuals is they can know everything in the world except like, oh what, what's the exact line? It's just like uh they can make a. c ah, I'm butchering the line, I can't remember but it's something to the effect like One thing about intellectuals is that they can, uh, you know, everything in the world about a particular topic and still have no idea what they're talking about. But he obviously phrased it better because he's a world-class screenwriter and I'm just a bumbling idiot who can't remember the line.
0: (laughs) But no, but no, but I know what you, yeah, but I totally get what you're saying. So it's like, I don't, I mean, there should be criticism, sure. And it sounds like some things that Costa Rica has done in, like, his life outside of this film are unusual, um, well, it sounds he's like done? he's
1: a character from this movie. I mean, oh, you know, yes. a few things that I saw on Wikipedia. Like at one point, 1993, he challenged a guy to a duel, the leader mm-hmm. of uh, Serbia's ultra-nationalist movement. Like just the fact that in 1993 he's challenging anybody to a duel shows that Blackie at least is expressing like uh, some some wish fulfillment on uh, on Kusturica's part. And he said that the guy could choose any weapon that he wished but that guy ended up refusing saying he didn't want to be accused of a murder of an artist and then there's another time at a film festival in 1995 where he knocked down the leader of the new Serbian right movement and uh, yeah, it's just it just sounds like he, he, he likes a good fight he enjoys a nice brawl he enjoys a good duel duel, a duel at dawn and I mean he sounds like he'd be a fucking blast to hang out with <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean that—that's the thing. I mean, this is another thing. Henri Lavie said, "You will not find so anyone in Sarajevo with a good word for him." And I'm like, that doesn't seem to be the case. It seems like people in, in you know that that part of the world kind of like him uh, a lot. It seems like these films are well, at least over there, they're they're still popular. So. I mean, and he's had a, more popular films that have come out after this. So. Yeah, I remember
1: talking about this movie when I was in Croatia. And I, I met some Serbians and I met some Croatians, and I brought because I just knew so little about Yugoslavian cinema that this was one of the few points where I could say, "Oh, well, Kusarica, what do you think?" And no one had a bad word to say about him. Granted, these were film lovers, and these were freaks, and these were kind of maniacs, and so they were writers and editors and just or just diehard die cinephiles. So they're coming at it from that point of view. Something tells me that some quote-unquote, more respectable elements of society, people who are less prone to, you know, rampaging all night with gypsy bands. Maybe they had, um, I guess they just didn't like the fact that so much of the West was being exposed to the culture through this. But those they sound like they just have a stick up their butt and can't appreciate just how much fun this movie is.
0: Yeah, because my thing, too, is, I mean, apparently they did take a very small amount of funding from the government that was in power at the time, which was Slobodan Velocevic's government. Like, they used a few tanks in in a, in a scene, and they had, like, a small amount of, like, you know, some sort of tax abatement or something like that kind of thing, like, grant money. So, okay, they took a little money from that government in power at the time. Okay, not the best thing in the world, but, like, you know what, people don't pillory Lady Riefenstahl for her literal like actual Nazi propaganda that actually spread Nazism. So if people can say nice things about Lady Riefenstahl, they got to get over it with Costa Rica. Cause he didn't know where, what she did as far as in my book is evil, pure evil. What he did is he made a film that to, to sort of ease his pain over what was happening in his country. And, and that sort of thing. He didn't, didn't sway anybody that didn't cause anybody to do anything in the war that they did. So I think the criticisms are like way over overboard on him on that regard.
1: gotcha well, let's talk about the final third of this yeah. movie, which is yet again called war, where Blackie, after decades out in the in the world, has become yet another resistance fighter, but he steadfastly refuses to align himself with any Specific ideology or any specific uniform. He's just, he's still fighting for his country as he sees it and as he understands it. And we see that Marco has become increasingly corrupt. And, you know, obviously Marco and Natalia are starting to show some, some signs of age. And in spite of the really lighthearted, just maniacal tone of this movie, this is where we do get some of the most, I guess, like tragic and moving scenes. As you mentioned before, the reunion between Marco's little brother and the ape probably the most emotional scene of the entire movie We you just hear the emotion in his voice when he he finds i think it's a chimpanzee but he finds him after decades of being apart and we see how gray the chimpanzees become and how they're hugging each other and how they're embracing him. it's really moving stuff but obviously when marco and natalia are captured by some of these uh, forces that are working for blackie they whip out the walkie-talkie and they ask blackie we, we found some um I, I don't know how they describe him, but basically like arms dealers and Blackie's like, Oh, we well do whatever you do with them. Like under any circumstances. And they just mow them down and set them on fire. And it's probably the most horrific violence that we see the entire, I mean, the violence is always three stooges violence up to that point where it's like, you know, it's played for laughs and so on and so forth. But it's hard not to see just the, the devastation of war at this point when the two characters that we know and love have literally been burned alive.
0: Oh yeah. I mean this, this, Third section is like everything up to that point is really kind of well it starts to get more sad in the in the end part of the second um uh, uh, the second section when the bride decides to take her own life and jump in the well yeah. that's when things start to get really sad and start to get real and then this third section has really no happiness to it. it doesn't have that tone it's all this is all real this is all happening and there's no levity that's when the brass music goes away also there's no more brass music um, and it's just this, like, you see, you know, Yvonne is, is an old man. He's in a, uh, sort of like a, I guess you could say a mental institution or, or something, like an old, yeah, old person's home. Yeah, he's been
1: committed, and he's just now starting to realize that his brother completely fucked over and betrayed everybody he loved.
0: Right, and so he, he's on, like, some sort of trip with a doctor, which is a little confusing. I never understood why he's on this trip with his doctor, and then he just lets him go, but he does. Um, and then, you know, so everything there is real. Like he realizes that his brother has lied to him all these years. And how could you do that to me and everything. And even one, I think one of the most chilling lines is when they're just like walking by and there's like a paramilitary group and they've captured a bunch of people. And they're like, Oh, we have three of these and four of these and three UN soldiers. And it shows at that point in the war. And that was still, I mean, we're at that point in this movie, it was probably like 99, 92, 93 or four something. Yeah, that's when things were getting bad and still really, really bad, and it was like indiscriminate killing. I mean, it was were- like 1993
1: yeah. was the first time I was really became aware of things. Where I remember I was re- in like our modern European history class. We were reading Time magazine. There was a picture of a river, quite literally, dammed up and choked with dead bodies. I mean, it was as horrible and atrocious as it gets. And I will not pretend to be an expert on the the troubles uh, of Yugoslavia at that time. All I know is that the people that I knew from there that I met in L.A. in the early 2000s were just happy that I was over. And some of them, I remember one of them uh, just like pretended to be crazy in order to avoid his military service altogether in order to go to film school in America. But it it was just, it was as ugly and horrible a scenario as you could possibly encounter. And it's like, you know, the fog of war, I think was very much uh, at at play where just there are a lot of confusion a lot of really ambiguous lines between the various factions involved. And, yeah, I think this movie definitely taps into a bit of that at the very end where you just see just how bleak and horrible and dark things have become. This is, like, you know, complete, total bedlam, like end-of-the-world scenario.
0: Right, because be, like I, I, in my my old paper I had found a quote, and it said, like, this was a war against every uh, everyone against everyone. Because even when you try to read the history of, like, okay, like, the Serbian Bosnians and the Bosnians. And then there were all these splinter paramilitary groups that were kind of like taking the, you know, and they, some of them just did their own thing. Literally, they had nothing to do with the government. So this conflict was incredibly confusing, incredibly weird. And then you had the UN involved and the UN were supposed to be peacekeepers, but then they sort of became combatants, but not always. And they kind of let things go. So it's just a big old mess. And I think that was really important that they put the UN... Uh, in the end of the film to show that, like, yeah, the UN was supposed to be there helping out, and, like, they were just kind of around. Um, so that, and especially when they're, they're uh, you know, shuttling, like, refugees underground, like, in a bus. They're like, no, we're on our way to Italy. Like, come with us. We're going to get safe. And, you know, that's basically what the UN was doing, was moving people around. Um, so, yeah, it's a incredibly weird conflict. So, in a way, when you think about it, how else was he going to make a film about this when the conflict was so... Like confusing.
1: Absolutely. It's Whereas in World the best War II, way. the battle lines were very clearly drawn. You've got your communists, you've got your Nazis, you've got your Allied powers, and it was like it was much more easy to kind of throw in your lot with a particular faction.
0: Yeah, and I mean, especially with I mean, you know, people didn't quite understand. We didn't talk about it that much. Like you said, you know, you were we were both in high school at the time, and it was like kind of like a a thing that nobody. People talked about it the news, but not so much.
1: Well, also, we're Americans, and Americans are notorious for having zero curiosity about the outside world. I mean, we were well aware of the OJ scandal, but meanwhile, like, you know, horrific genocide on a mass scale. Like, what? Where? Where's Europe? Where, huh? Like, we're just, we are the most, probably the most criminally stupid people on the planet when it comes to understanding global politics and that sort of thing. And, yeah, in high school, I was completely, totally up my own butthole. Like, you know, like like most Americans, narcissistic, obsessed with what was going on in my own life and just completely, utterly not curious at all. And so it wasn't until probably like a decade later that I started to glean just like a little bit just by virtue of the fact I was meeting some people from the region.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing. I, I'm, you know, the few, you know, a few people I've met, like you know, uh, along the way, immigrants and such who, are, you know, from that area, they're like, oh, my God, it's the best movie. They, they seem to like universally love it um, because it's basically like the thing that makes them feel better about themselves and about what happened,
1: you know? Well, that's what it always really really sticks to the landing. The ending yeah. of the movie is just awesome. Like, you know, Blackie, he looks in a, in a body water, and he thinks he sees his son. He dives in, and you have this afterlife scenario where everybody's on this little chunk of land that's basically breaking away and floating. It's like almost something out of, like, a Terry Gilliam movie, and it's just, it's a feast. It's a permanent feast, and Blackie's wife is there, his son is there, and you have Marco and Natalia, and they're a little awkward because... Then, like, Marco betrayed everybody at that party, and Natalia obviously knows that she's not necessarily wanted there by Blackie's wife, so there's a lot of tensions, but in the end, as I think Blackwood puts it perfectly, he says, well, I can forgive you, but I won't forget, and I was like, that's, that's a perfect way to put it, like, we, we can move on, we can get past this, I'm gonna be totally aware of how you totally fucked us over for the rest of, like, eternity, basically, but I, I do have the capacity to forgive, and they start just dancing and drinking and jumping around and acting like fucking maniacs again. And that's when you had that beautiful sequence from, uh, from Marcus little brother who now is totally lost the stutter and he just turns right to the camera and that's this wonderful little soliloquy.
0: Yeah. That's so beautiful. And that's interesting too. It's like the idealized version of what we are in heaven or in the afterlife. It's like, Ivan is finally like, he doesn't have a limp and he doesn't stutter and he's now he can just, you know, be a, a quote unquote regular man and he just talks about how, you know, like th- that we used to have a country and, you know, we kind of don't anymore. But it- it's a beautiful way to, you know, put it together. I like the awkwardness between Vera, you know, the first, you know, the wife who had passed away and then in, in Natalia. Because it's like, yeah, you know, they're all together in heaven, but they're still going to be a little weird with each other. And that's Especially great.
1: because, you know, Blackie's got divided loyalties lo- lo- on
0: that Yeah, and the fact that Beer is the one who organized the dinner, but he said, who put this all together? Oh, your mother did. I mean, like, that's so sweet. Um, and it's just, I mean, that section just makes me sob because, you know, you see them in the water and you're like, what's happening? And it's like, oh my gosh, wait, they're all back. They're all back. And look, they're all young and beautiful and happy. And it's just, it's the most gorgeous thing. Like, how could, it's just a brilliant ending, especially when the, the actual island just cracks off and like starts floating away and they're all on their own like little Yugoslavia yeah. their own little one that they can have for themselves for all eternity to bicker and dance together and it's just it's so perfect I mean I think I think that's why I come back to this film every time because the way it ends is such uh, it's hopeful it's maudlin it's kind of like everything it needs to and be and it makes
1: the movie feel about half as long as it actually is it's a two hour 40 minute running time and it just it just flies by
0: Oh, yeah, because I mean, I've watched this film a lot in my time, and it's, it's I have, it probably been about two years since I've seen it last, um, So th- since just watching it last week, and I was like, God, this is so damn entertaining.
1: Now, have you ever felt compelled to hunt down the extended version? I know there is a 320-minute cut out there.
0: Well, I do. I mean, I yeah, I only re- recently heard about that because of the new, uh, what was it, uh, Kino Lorber put it out last year on, on Blu-ray, finally. Because that was the weird thing. This movie, I think another reason that people do watch it, it was out of print for like 10 years.
1: Yeah, I, I first saw it on a, a letterboxed VHS, I think, from the late '90s, and I, the way I watched it for this, there, I I joined some Eastern European film site where you could pay to be part of their plan by the day, but it was a pristine, perfectly restored version of it with beautiful subtitles. Like, wow, I was like, well, as far as like finding weird internet sites, this actually is a, as good as I'm going to find. But yeah, it it can be a tough to find movie, which probably is why it's kind of. Fallen on hard times in terms of people discussing it, but I think probably because I was getting into movies in the '90s. But when I think of foreign films, the '90s was a really rich, juicy period where both in independent films as well as foreign films, it just it seemed like foreign films and independent films were going through a very sexy period in America and just had this insane popularity and this insane accessibility. And obviously, we have foreign films that do well now in L.A., New York, and but I don't. Know, there's something about Khan Film Festival and Foreign Films in America it just felt like an event. And Underground, I think, is one of the, the best examples of that from that period.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, and you think like the year before this one, the Palme d'Or, like Pulp Fiction did, and Pulp Fiction is a classic, of course. And then this is the next year, and I'm like, why isn't this a classic? Like, it, it bothers me because I'm like, I think if more people saw this, they'd be like, this is the best movie ever. It's so exciting. It's so much fun. And that's the thing. Like, I mean, the, the DVD copy I have, I bought. Probably 15 years ago. And that was probably like one of the last times you could buy that copy. And then it was just out of print, unless you spent like a lot of money on some sort of, you know, bootleg or, or something like that. So. Yeah, I mean, it, and I guess some of his other films, are like Arizona Dream is absolutely out on DVD.
1: Yeah, and like White Hat, I think it's a White Cat, Black Hat, it's also, White mm-hmm. Hat, Black Hat is also available, which I've never seen, but apparently that one's pretty goddamn funny as well.
0: Yeah, I've seen about five minutes of Arizona Dream, um, which John, Johnny Depp's in and some uh, other folks, uh, Americans, but uh, it's like one of those things where I'm not trying to be like, okay, this is too perfect, I don't want to ruin it. I'm sure his other films are great, but I've kind of always had that weird attitude, first of all, just... Not being able to find his films availability, and also just kind of like, this film's perfect. It's not like he's a one-hit wonder, but if you can make something this good, you're golden with me, man. Like this is all you need to do, you know?
1: Yeah, and also he is. We should also mention he is an actor. Like, did you did you spot his cameo in the movie?
0: He's the uh, an arms dealer. Yeah, I think he's
1: negotiating with Marco in the in the third act. And but he he's appeared in a bunch of movies and he's, he just seems like he has this wild, uninhibited personality. And I think uh, it, this, when you proposed this, I hadn't thought about Underground in years. I was like, whoa, fuck yeah, Underground. That movie rules. Let's let's totally dive into Underground. But I think um, like you, I've been for whatever reason just been content to let Underground remain perfect in my imagination. But I've never done the homework and learned more about him. I think I need to address that shortcoming on my part and start actually hunting, at least at, the, at a bare minimum, see the other movie that he directed that won the Palm d'Or like in the mid-'80s. Um, what's that called? like When My Dad's Away or something like that? Or it's called... Hang on, I've got it written down. ba do ba do Or at least I thought it did. Well, in any case, he won in like... 1986 or something like that but also we should mention <laughs> he joined a punk band in 1986 where he was playing bass guitar so he just seems like a jack of he likes to act he likes to play bass he likes to direct movies he just uh, he seems like a, a jack of all trades and not necessarily master of all none, because obviously master filmmaker so he just got more talent than most people can lay like, claim to
0: yeah because he's uh, he's built also in the past in this this uh, in the uh, in the 2000s, he has built two towns, literally towns, in um ones 200 uh, kilometers uh, southwest of Belgrade. is called Kustendorf, and it's a traditional Serbian village. So it was like started out as like a um for the, one of this films he made called Life Is a Miracle. It was like a set, and then he just started to build it into a town, and now it's a town. It's a little teeny town, and he also <laughs> made a second one called uh andreagrad um and it's like a village that's a faux antique old town it's a historical fantasy that has that that's what lonely planet called it uh it's a custom-built tourist trap that is uh well worth the stroll so uh, and that's also in um i think that's like in slovenia or serbia or something. Uh, Yeah, I've been through Slovenia. Slovenia
1: is not very big. When I was driving, when I was leaving Croatia, I took a bus down to, I think, I took a bus to Venice, I think. In any case, you drive through Slovenia and it lasts like five seconds. But because Slovenia is its own country, it's like this little like thin little sliver they check all your papers and your passport at the first part then you fall asleep and 20 minutes later they wake you up because they're going to check it again as you go into the next part but (laughs) yeah it's funny how it's all been broken all these little pieces like i said i only know Croatia and that brief little bus ride through slovenia but flying in there was really cool you fly into venice and then i caught a ferry over to croatia you know i arrived in the night some port town the town was going berserk it was totally unrelated to the film festival and then i caught a ride to to Motovun. but yeah if you go in the summer the adriatic's like 85 degrees. It's so warm and it's totally clear. You can see like 20, 30 feet down. So so, you're in the the world's biggest hot tub just hanging out and chilling. And if you like eating protein-based uh, foods, you will find all the sausage you could ever want to eat. So it's a great place to eat sausage and drink booze and just uh, enjoy the sun. And yeah, I strongly recommend people head over there at some point and enjoy the, the summer weather over there. It's
0: fantastic. Um, actually, and also, the, the, another note, I mean, just the, the music, of course, in this film is amazing. And the reason is, is the composer Goran Bragovich. um I'm actually a big fan of his because of this film. And he has a band called... Um, the uh gordon bragovich and his wedding and funeral band all and right. they play all over the world um he's actually getting older at this point he's nearly 70 um because he's been making uh soundtracks like you know the film queen margot that really dirty french film Love it. Uh,
1: i like the dirty parts yeah <laughs>
0: yeah well they're all sweaty and dirty yeah, <laughs> yeah. Isabella Gianni. mm mm-hmm. yeah he did the score for that he's done the score for um a few of costa rica's films he also did like he was the soundtrack. Uh, he he ran the soundtrack for the Borat movie. Oh, nice! So that's why it has a, like the popular that like, kind of music in it. Um, and he plays all over the world. And he like goes to Carnegie Hall every once in a while. Um, look up. He was there about two years ago. Look up uh, on YouTube videos from that. It's amazing. The plate. The rafters are shaking. People are dancing all over the place. Like it's like imagine the band that's in the movie on stage at Carnegie Hall. Very cool. It's like that, and there's also another. If you're in the Brooklyn area, every year there's and I've wanted to go and I've always missed it. It's the Zlatna Usta Golden Festival, and it's in Prospect Park Hall, uh, Brooklyn, at Grand Prospect Hall in Brooklyn. And it's basically it's a massive two-day Balkan music festival, and like there's a like there's a lot of local bands in the the NYC area that actually there's like Slavic Soul Party, um, and the Raya Brass Band, and there's a bunch of other ones, and they all play at this uh, festival and it's like imagine if underground was like real if you see videos from it there's just people like just like mosh pits of people and like well, the closest I ever came around. to
1: having that experience when I saw Gogo Bordello play in LA mm-hmm. in Silver Lake and it was just Bananas, Like it wasn't like a big giant brass band. Like they use a lot of like electric guitars and violins, but they had that same energy where it's just like, everybody has this like weird devilish playfulness on the, on the, on the stage and the music is just absolutely delightful. But yeah, Silver Lake's a great place for music where like Beck's from and that sort of thing. But I remember just getting completely annihilated and they just, they attracted, you know, people who love that crazy Eastern European rock and roll punk, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Gogo Badello. They were the shit there back, back in the day.
0: Uh, Yeah. I mean, literally I became a fan of Gogo Badello because of Gordon Bragovich and like this kind of music and I was like okay I need to branch out and listen to some more of it and I was like oh cool it's like rock music but like this nice yeah so, absolutely
1: yeah it's, it's a wonderful a, hybrid
0: yeah so I mean this film has really like infected like my life in a lot of ways like the song that they sing when they're at the first wedding on the boat uh Messicena, when they're dancing around in their little trot you know I like literally the morning I got married, I put that on and like danced around my living room because I was like, this is such a happy song. I'm so happy. So, you know, I mean, a, a, a movie about war that can give you mu- mu- music like this and make you like happy. Like what, what a gift.
1: Well, also, you know? as, I imagine it's one of those things where if you there's a very good chance you might not live to see the following day. If when it comes to love and romance and partying, you really got to get after it. Like go all in, like play it to the hilt, because life is finite, and it's just—it's. I guess there's a a certain immediacy and intensity where you you got to party like it's the, your last night on earth, because it very well might be, and you feel that every time they get together and completely raise hell.
0: Yeah, I mean it's beautiful. I mean I am I am biased to brass music because my brother is a professional trombonist, so like to me that's just like ah, oh, it just sounds like the most beautiful music in the world. Of course, brass music does. So to some people it's probably incredibly
1: jarring and like, ah,
0: I can't handle well, I this for not, three hours. I'm going to
1: open this episode playing the entire song for the opening.
0: Exactly. It's, oh, it's just, so, so killer. Much fun. So, so much fun. And yeah. Um, I just I I love the music and I really hope like more people get into Balkan music even though it's it's a little unusual but you know it, it it has a lot to it it's really really
1: fun absolutely so. well any final thoughts on this flick because like like I said I hadn't thought about this movie in forever and I was just I saw it again last night and I was thrilled to see that it hadn't lost any of its power and if anything I like fell in love with it all over again because so few movies these days come anywhere near capturing that kind of emotion, that wild vitality. I feel like movies, there's so many filmmakers now that are, like, just they they gaze at their own navel, and they are humorless, and they are joyless, and they are sexless, and they're just the consummate buzzkills. They're just wet blankets. And this movie is on the opposite end of the spectrum, and it just made me realize, God damn, like... World cinema has lost something when movies like this are like a total anomaly. Like, where, where, where are the young Custerizas who are kind of, kind of lead the charge and make movies fucking fun again?
0: Yeah, because I mean, there's, there's very few films that are like this. I mean, it's not the same. To the only kind of film I can think that's sort of an onslaught like this is like Hard to Be a God something like that by Alexis Germán. That's a grim,
1: uh, dark, right? Dark and that's, movie. That's
0: grim, but I mean, it's very like there's something's always happening yeah. in that film. There's constant, constant movement, movement, movement.
1: I think the this dance scene in Cold War when she's going berserk to the rock and roll music kind of starts to capture some of that music. I mean, granted, it's a Polish movie, obviously, mm. not, not Serbian. But during that scene where she just she's drinking, she's smoking, she's dancing with strangers, she's dancing on the bar, where she's just going berserk, that flavor, that scene is very reminiscent of the unbridled quality of Underground.
0: Yeah, and it not being a musical, but being a music like it's 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 absolutely not a musical. Nobody's you know I mean people sing, but it
1: has that quality. Yeah, it's not Meet Me in St. Louis where people just burst right. into song.
0: Right, it has that quality of sort of just movement and 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 uh, you know just happiness and joy, the, just the joy of being like music, joy, you know, and that makes us human. That kind of thing, exactly. Like like live in today, like the only day, like day you have, kind of thing. But, um, yeah, and I just, you know, I, th- I really encourage people to watch this. Try not to get too tied up with all of the extra controversies with criticisms of, of the philosophers oh, and things the out there. Yeah,
1: watch the movie. Ignore the yeah. philosophers and watch the movie. <laughs> yeah,
0: because, fil- I mean, if you're a filmmaker, you're going to get a lot out of this. You're going to learn a lot from this film and go, wow, I mean, you. this is what you can do. It's a triumph of casting. It's a triumph of, you know, just soundtrack of of the story is insane it does go all over the place but it's it's a brilliantly written story and it resolves itself in such a beautiful uh, thoughtful and, and compassionate way that you know like and also there's a monkey as a main character so there's a monkey as a main character That that's kind of a big selling point for me so um you know how many movies are this beautiful and this touching with a monkey as a main character well, you know?
1: I spend most of my time in a perpetual state of being completely, totally burnt out on movies. But when I have a, an experience where I stop thinking about it in terms of, oh, i got to take my notes. i gotta, I got to do my homework. i got to get prepared where I can just sit back and enjoy the movie as a movie. And I know I say this a lot, but I had that experience with the underground. So I thank you for giving me a gentle reminder about what movie watching is all about.
0: Hey no problem man I'm I'm glad to do it and I'm glad we got to talk about it.
1: Excellent. Well where can people find you online if they want to talk about underground or any other topic?
0: Uh, I am on Twitter at liana marie k um, and that's about it I haven't really updated my blog in the longest time uh, just uh, you know so uh, yeah but that's where you can find me and yeah say hey
1: beautiful also if people want to hear more about Le- from Leanne check out our giant episode about Michael Hanukkah that we did with Marcus Penn back in November December and it was it was like five six months ago it was a whopper we tackled Almost everything he's ever done in terms of feature films, and we probably did a superficial job on some because we were trying to shove so many in there, but if you are a fan of Hanukkah, and I I would say my admiration for him deepened considerably in the preparation for that, so yeah, Hanukkah's a very different filmmaker from Kustorica, but if you want to go to the dark side, that episode is there waiting for you to be discovered. Well, excellent. Well, we hope you all have enjoyed this episode. Please leave us a rating or review on iTunes. And if you want to talk more with me, you can find me on Twitter at Colbrax. If you want to see my big, shiny, pale, bald head talking about nonsense on YouTube, you can find my channel, Geekin' with James Hancock. And please remember to subscribe to the channel and all that good stuff. And coming up in the future, got an episode. We got uh, Marco and Mikhail coming back to talk about movies that perhaps are overly long by great directors that we admire. And beyond that, got Rob Cotto and Marcus coming back to talk about the great Seymour Cassell, who sadly left us recently. So fun stuff on the horizon. But thanks, as always, for listening. But more importantly, as always, Onwards and Upwards.
0: Ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll
1: do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.